I'm Marty Martin. And I'm Art Woods. Welcome to the Big Biology Podcast. Today we're talking with Jim Brown and John Harrison. Jim is an emeritus professor of biology at the University of New Mexico and a member of the National Academy of Sciences. John is a professor of biology at Arizona State University and a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Jim and John come from different scientific backgrounds, Jim from ecology and John from physiology, but they share a passion for our topic today, which is called scaling. Scaling describes how the traits that organisms have change with body size in non-intuitive ways. Scaling is a big deal because it's such a fundamental part of biology. It also matters for a bunch of practical issues, like how we conserve wild populations and even how we prescribe drugs. Over the past 100 years, biologists have been struggling to understand how and why traits scale. Uh, how traits scale has been the easier problem. We now know a lot about this. Why traits scale has been much harder to answer, and there's been a lot of controversy and competing ideas. Both Jim and John have been major players in scaling research, and today we discuss with them the how and the why of scaling. So Jim and John, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Thanks, Art and Marty. So I want to start by um, taking apart these two traits, size and metabolic rate, and let's just focus first on organismal size. So if we just set aside the effect of body size on, on metabolic rate, can you guys explain why is body size so important in biology? The size range of living things is absolutely enormous. It's uh, about 20 powers of 10, so that's 10 with 20 zeros after it. And to give you a feeling for that, if you look at your skin, there are literally millions of little microbes, mostly bacteria, living on your skin that are so small that you can't even see them. And at the other extreme of the size spectrum, we have giant sequoia trees and uh, great whales uh, that are larger than uh, tractor trailer trucks and weigh literally tons. So organisms have managed to diversify and fill up the world uh, with an incredible variety of sizes and other aspects of form and function that go along with that. John, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I would add, yeah, so that creates a tremendous amount of the biological diversity and this and I guess the other point to kind of lead into what's to come is that how big you are affects so many things about about the world that you experience. So for a, a tiny bacteria or a small, very small microscopic animal, they're living in this viscous world uh, that is very different from what it's like for a, a, lar a very large organism moving. So there's tremendous just differences in the way they experience the world. Um, competition among the different animals and, and organisms of different sizes. And so it really structures um, and creates tremendous, uh, a huge amount of the diversity. Is, that is we there see. a lower limit to how, how large organisms can be? There, there's some very, very small invertebrates um, that are, um, yeah, I suppose there is a lower limit set by the size of molecules. And, and, and what about the other micron. end of the spectrum? Do you think there, I mean, is there an upper limit in some respect to how large the largest organisms can be and and if so what what sets those limits well the largest extant organisms weigh about 200 tons animals and those would be uh, the largest of the great whales and the more recent data we're getting on dinosaurs suggested that the biggest dinosaurs uh, were of comparable size and the a number of people have suggested reasons why it's difficult to be much bigger. The simple, simply the quantity of food, which will play into, I think, what we'll talk about with metabolic rates in a bit. The quantity of food required by such organisms is enormous, and uh, a correlate of their size and their metabolic rate is that uh, they live very slowly. So it takes them a long time to mature. They grow very slowly, and they uh, live a long time. Uh, some whales uh, and uh, live on the order of centuries, and the largest plants live thousands of years. Uh, but it's difficult to imagine pushing those limits very much farther. So, Jim, you're saying that Godzilla is out of the question? <laughs> 
Probably, yes. <laughs> you know, you have to figure out uh, how much uh, he would eat. And uh, we actually did some uh, calculations. I can't remember the numbers now, but we actually calculated if you scale the uh, reproduction of primates up to the size of Queen Kong, uh, we uh, uh, estimated how many children she'd have, how far apart they would be spaced, and so forth. <laughs> That's the kind of thing you can do with these ideas about scaling. I, I guess I, I think for a, a really good thing to emphasize, though, is we really don't know the, the question of what sets, sets the upper limit. So certainly food availability is a possibility, and we certainly see fewer large animals, I think, undoubtedly for this reason, that, that it becomes, you can only have so many, it's to some extent supported, large animals have to be supported on the production of plants and things they're eating. But certainly there's been many arguments for other things, such as um, biomechanics of the skeleton. People have argued about that. And, you know, this is something that's gone back and forth. Is that why the largest mammals occur in the ocean and not on land? Does it have something to do with... This has been one of the arguments and one of the reasons people have argued about dinosaurs and whether or not the really big dinosaurs had to walk in, you know, walk in rivers. I mean, I think most most people are arguing now that that's probably not the case, but it's it's still an active area of research. I think we, we really don't know. So shall we shift gears and talk about the other uh, piece of what what will eventually be scaled? Um Let's let's switch over to metabolic rate, and um, if we can hear from both of you about what is metabolism, why do so many biologists care about it? Uh, I, I think maybe some folks have, have made the argument that metabolic rate is an integrator, an integrator of sorts. Um, so if that word is useful, um, I guess at the end of the day, you know, medical biologists to ecologists, they all get excited about metabolic rate in some capacity. So if you want to speak to what makes it so interesting, okay. Well, I would. Define, start by defining metabolism, saying what we mean by metabolism, and defining metabolism very broadly as the biological processing of energy and materials. So organisms make their living by taking up resources from their environment, and those resources include the oxygen for animals that John was just talking about, or carbon dioxide for plants, uh, they include uh, a source of energy, either sunlight for plants or food for animals, and then all the other things that the bodies of the organisms are made of, all the other uh, chemicals uh, the bodies are made of. And then inside the body, these resources are transformed, and they're really transformed, uh, from my point of view, into two avenues. Uh, the majority of the uh, energy that's taken in, and a lot of metabolism focuses on energy because energy runs the world and energy runs organisms, but the majority of the energy uh, that is acquired either uh, as food by animals or from uh, sunlight from, by photosynthesis for plants, the majority of that is spent for uh, what we call respiration uh, to power the uh, energetic cost of living. It, it's basically uh, burned, uh, the uh, chemicals are uh, oxidized, and uh, the energy is uh, transferred into a, an amazing biological molecule that we call ATP that is then itself shunted around the body and used to do all the things that the body does. It's used to contract muscles and send nerves uh, move things across membranes and so forth and so on. And then a, a smaller fraction of that uh, energy that is taken in is retained uh, as, as biological biomass energy and shunted on through um, in, in the process that we call production. And that, so that's used to produce new uh, biomass either by growth or reproduction. And then the waste products from these uh, transformations that are going on within the body are excreted back into the environment. And I view that whole thing and all of the chemistry and physiology that's involved as metabolism. But as I say, 
much of the emphasis has been on energy uh, because without energy, the biological machine runs down. Organisms die, ecosystems disappear, etc. So I guess that's my start at, at defining that process. John, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I would. Um, I think that was great. And also, I like to think, you know, sort of just at the definition of life, you know, what, what life does is transform inorganic material into organized form. It kind of defeats entropy. Uh, so um, it's about taking energy and using it to, to build organized bodies and then to do work on the on the world. Um, so if you think about it, that's, those are really essentially what what um, what organisms do. Metabolic rate, um, I, and I think Jim, I agree with Jim. Metabolism is is a, a network of of chemical reactions that um, connect all the different things that organisms do. Uh, metabolic rate is something we can measure. It has a kind of a um, a direct definition. Um, and it can be measured in a number of ways by heat production. So this would be kind of the the waste um, heat left over as an index of the all the transformations, the chemical transformations happening in the body. Uh, for a organism that is um, like us, that produces the vast majority of its uh, ATP from using oxygen, you can measure oxygen consumption rate as a measure of metabolic rate. Um, so there's... Um, you know, when we talk about metabolic rate, that's usually what people are talking about, uh, and that would be the energy turnover uh, that Jim was talking about. And I would agree with Jim, yeah, that it sits, that's a measure of all the other things that the animal, all the things that are, the animal is doing to um, move itself toward more organization and less entropy, or to do work on the world. Well, the thing that John mentioned is this ability of this uh, metabolic process to produce these highly organized systems that we call living things, that we call organisms, which are able to persist far from thermodynamic equilibrium. And we have examples of physical systems that can highly organize themselves as well. Thunderstorms, for example, uh, uh, and, and there are uh, you know, a number of other uh, good examples of purely physical systems, but uh, what they those none of those systems do is the other thing that life does, which is to faithfully reproduce itself, generation after generation after generation, and you know that requires this almost magical uh, kind of setting the clock of aging, which is related to metabolism, which. Uh, setting the clock of aging back to zero every time that new fertilized egg is produced. Okay, good. I want to um, sort of redirect back towards scaling now. And um, so let's, let's put these ideas about body size and about metabolic rate together. And in I'd say in different ways, you guys both study what biologists call scaling. And what does that mean? John, do you want to take the first shot? Sure. So re really, scaling is about how body size affects function. And, you know, certainly engineers use this when they design dams and planes. And uh, there's a long history of, of um, uh, biologists doing this. Um, going back to Galileo and probably earlier, Aristotle, people talking about the effect of size uh, and people noted a long time ago, for example, that um, larger mammals have thicker bones and that um, this would be necessary in order for them not to break their bones while walking. So there's this classic um, um, surface to volume ratio that happens as organisms get larger. So as animals get bigger, the um, in general, their weight increases uh, faster than the Diameter. If they were just scaled up perfectly, their uh, their weight would scale much faster than the diameters of their bones or their surface area of their skin. And this causes changes in the way organisms have to function. And uh, I talked before about the 
the way the animals, um, way animals experience the world in terms of how viscous the the surface, the fluids are around them, things like that. So it's basically discussing the general topic of how size affects um, the way organisms or or bridges function. Mm -hmm. and, and what about metabolic scaling uh, per se? So from the 1800s, we've known that in some animals, the um, the general pattern is that Larger animals use more energy in total, but less energy per gram. And um, and this has been uh, a very broadly demonstrated pattern uh, across mammals to um, fish and insects and all different kinds of animals. It may not occur in plants or bacteria. So that has been some some controversy uh, in the literature, but. I don't know, Jim. Jim maybe know about some newer stuff, but my my general impression is that it looks like it's uh, turning out to be primarily animals where we see this pattern of of lower energy use per gram in larger animals. And, and let me just state this a different way and see if you guys agree. So uh, the sort of naive expectation that I think most people would have is if you double the body size of an organism, you would also double its its metabolic rate. But that's not what happens. In fact, you get uh, if you double the body size, you get about a 75% increase in metabolic rate, not 100% or a doubling of the metabolic rate. Is that exactly. a fair way to say it? Yes. Yeah. So, so Jim, do you want to do you want to add anything to the sort of what overall is scaling and you know, what's the way to think about metabolic scaling? You know, I think the way that I used to introduce scaling the students when I would talk about it, is that life as it's evolved has faced this enormous challenge that it's all based on essentially the same stuff at the molecular level. Organisms are made out of the same molecules and they use basically the same chemical reactions uh, to do their work. And then somehow as life increases from bacteria to whales, these systems have to be put together in such a way that uh, they keep working uh, as they get bigger and bigger. And I think, to me, the essence of scaling is that it involves sort of two elements. So on the one hand, there are things that are absolutely invariant, that don't change. And these are the molecules and reactions. And then there are other aspects of the system that have to be scaled as the system gets bigger and bigger. And let me make the analogy uh, to a building, right? We have buildings that range from small houses to, you know, gigantic skyscrapers. And if you look at those, they're all, the, the fundamental building blocks of, of those systems are the same. The tiles on the floor and in the ceilings, uh, the structure of the concrete, uh, the outlets uh, for the electrical uh, appliances, the faucets in the bathroom, all of those things are invariant. They don't change with the size of the building. They're held constant. But then as we make a building bigger and bigger, there are other things that we absolutely have to change or the building won't work. Uh, we have to change the size of the beams and the support structure. And this is similar to the biomechanics that John talked about. We also have to change system for supplying resources. So the size of the water mains and electrical mains that come in and how those branch uh, to get to the endpoints that are invariant. And we have to change the uh, size of the heating and cooling system uh, so that the uh, system can uh, maintain a, a relatively constant internal climate. And all of those things have to be scaled, and there are very rigid constraints. Uh, what I call, you know, rules, almost laws, as to how those aspects of the system have changed as the uh, as organisms have evolved over these many, many orders of magnitude in body size, or even over the life cycle of an individual organism. You know, a, a tuna fish starts life as an egg that is almost microscopic. And 
it grows to a mature size that can be a metric ton in mass. And as that organism grows, uh, it has to continually make uh, these changes. So the building blocks are put together in ways that are supported and work and support the structure and function of the whole system. In the last 20 years or so, there's been a a large debate, one of the, the larger ones of which I'm aware in biology, about why um, metabolism scales. So do you want to take a crack at what the debate is and especially why the argument has been so intense? I mean, it'd be great to hear each of your perspectives here. I'd be happy to start. And so maybe I'll start with a little history. Really, the first explanation for for this goes back to the surface area to volume ratio. So so um, we had um, uh, several uh, French and and German scientists who argued for uh, basically the scaling rate of mammals being related to the balancing heat loss and heat heat production. So as we said, a, a larger animal has a relatively lower surface area. So that would mean if they were really just trying to keep their body at the constant temperature, that they would have a lower rate of heat loss, and therefore they would need to have a lower rate of metabolism. And this was sort of the the basic starting idea, I think, of, of why metabolic rate was lower in larger mammals was because they had a, a lower rate of heat loss. And uh, as it became clear that this also applied to animals that don't regulate their body temperature, people looked for broader um, broader explanations, and there have been many, many put forward. And I think that that um, I think there's a number of things that have made this controversial, controversial and difficult. And uh, one of them is that actually fundamentally, it's very it's it turns out to be difficult, I think, to test these big evolutionary patterns. So we're used to doing studies with organisms where we can do direct experiments and and manipulate things about, you know, about what that organism is experiencing, and you can really do see cause and effect there. And I think with patterns that go across whales to um, to uh, tiny parasitic wasps, it's, it's much more challenging. And I think that's one of the fundamental reasons is how we think about how to, how to test these and how to put the models together. But um, yeah, we could talk more about some of the specific. I'll let, let, um, Jim talking about his, you know, he's put forward some really uh, um, important models for understanding the process. But I guess the general point I'd like to say is there have been many proposed reasons. Some re- have been ecological, like there's not enough food for large animals. Uh, some have been biomechanic uh, related to the um, the costs of movement and uh, how that changes with size. And, and that might then drive other changes in metabolic rate. Some are related to auction delivery. Some have been um, talked talked about all different kinds of things, the, the, the forces that are needed for circulation of blood, for example. So there have been many different explanations, and uh, people have had, a, I think, a hard time just coming to grips with all the diversity and how to address this kind of broad evolutionary question. You know, I, I think the challenge for almost the last century now in all this was put Forward, it was put forth by a biologist by the name of Max Kleiber, who uh, was in the uh, School of Veterinary Medicine at University of California, Davis. And he measured the metabolic rates of a large number of mostly domestic animals, from mice and canaries uh, to uh, cows and horses. And he found that uh, instead of the scaling uh, going as a surface to volume, relationship, a, a relationship based on thirds, it seemed to go on a ba- relationship based on fourths. And, and so here's the, uh, the thing, that if we have a, a deer that weighs 10,000 times as much as a mouse, which is approximately correct, the deer only uses a thousand times as much energy as the mouse. And, and this is what we, we, we call this uh, sublinear uh, scaling or whatever. And, you know, that seems, you know, surprising because if you think the easiest way to scale up an organism would be just, you know, to scale it up. If you've got a 10,000 times uh, 
as, as much protoplasm there, you'd need to feed it 10,000 times as much food to keep it alive. But that's not the way uh, organisms work. And it's relatively easy to show why. Uh, for example, one of the things we've done is work out models for the uh, supply system, particularly for the arteries that supply uh, oxygen and nutrients to the body. And so you, you have the supply running, running from the heart uh, of a mammal out to the capillaries where those uh, resources are taken up by the cells. And you can actually work out that uh, if you had as many capillaries out in the tissues of an elephant or a whale as you do in a mouse to supply the metabolic rate of a mouse, the mammal would be impossible. It would require more blood than the volume of the mammal because you not only have to have all uh, this blood in the capillaries, but you'd have to have the, uh, those capillaries hooked up to the heart uh, with a whole network of vessels, and you calculate up uh, what the volume of uh, the blood in those vessels would have to be, uh, and it would be impossible uh, to, uh, to supply that. Uh, so I think one of the things that is clear is that organisms have evolved to large size only because they're able to scale back. Uh, I think it's going to turn out that this is true even of plants in that parts of plants may continue to operate uh, at the same metabolic levels uh, as the plants change size. In particular, the leaves may, but uh, as plants get bigger and bigger, a larger and larger fraction of the plant is made up of stems and trunk, and that is uh, supportive and conducting uh, tissue uh, that has very low metabolic rates. And so the actual metabolic rates of large trees is lower on a per gram basis than it would be for a little herb, just the same way uh, that it's lower in an elephant on a per gram basis than it is in a mouse. I want to just sort of give you my perspective on um, how I see this debate having developed over the past couple of decades. And and I, I want to just pose this and see if you guys agree. To, to me, it seems like the argument has been in large part about supply and demand for energy. And, and by that, I mean, you know, an organism, to use your building analogy, an organism is like a building in the sense that it has resources and energy coming in. And then it's using up those resources and energy to carry out the activities that are going on in inside of it. And I would say, you know, Jim, you and your colleagues have focused on this, the sort of networks that supply resources and energy inside organisms and have made the argument that those networks constrain metabolic rates in large organisms to be lower than they otherwise would. I think that's a restatement of what you just said about, about you know, blood supply and capillaries. John, you and other, other physiologists in the field have argued more about the demand side of it and have constructed arguments that invoke changes in the demand for energy rather than changes in the supply of energy as being the driving force in what's shaping these, these patterns of, of scaling. So to, to put this in terms of the building analogy, I would say is the argument about if you had if you had buildings of different size that use different amounts of energy is the argument about whether or not the water mains and the electrical grid constrain the way those buildings use energy versus is it something about the actual activities going on inside those buildings that that shape or constrain the total amount of energy that they use yeah um I think it'd be yeah, it's interesting to think about it with the building. So I think yeah, this is the you're right to identify um, the question of is it a supply limited phenomena? So so Jim laid out the argument that it's really impossible for um, for large animals to deliver adequate oxygen to the tissues, and that's been what some of the um, uh, what what many of their their models have have uh, argued for. And yeah, that would sort of be the idea of those pipes up through the building. It would be 
impossible to make the pipes big enough to have um, the same number of sinks per room, uh, say, if we were talking about just water use, you know, that there would be it would be impossible or too expensive to have big enough mains. To, so therefore, as we built the, bu the buildings bigger, uh, we would have to have fewer sinks per floor. You know, that would be sort of the, the analogy. And um, the demand side would, might be something like, well, you know, the taller the building, the views get really good and more and richer people live there and they want bigger spaces. So I guess they have fewer sinks because they have big living rooms and bedrooms. So that would be the demand thing. The bigger building would have fewer sinks. And that's why there would be a reduced water use per square foot of the building or cubic foot of the building. So, yeah, that would be a good way to think about the supply versus demand way of, of in the building complex, in the building context. And, yeah, I think that's the essence. So is there really a limitation on supply or the big animals? Is there a need for use? Are they have they been selected to use energy at a lower rate and therefore they have, um, you know, reduced supply? So, Jim, do you agree that it's a, I mean, is that a fair characterization of, of the debate from a 20,000-foot view? I, I think it's, you know, a fair characterization of a lot of the debate that's gone over on over the last couple decades now. But I think, you know, ultimately it's uh, misplaced, maybe. You know, I, I think that to talk about supply and demand may be actually a false dichotomy. Much of the work that we did, I think, shows how it was possible, how some of these systems have been designed and what the physical uh, and geometric principles of design are that allow uh, larger animals uh, to be supplied. Uh, but that's, you know, that's really not the whole story. Some of the, I mean, uh, some of the more recent thoughts that I've had have tended to focus more on an aspect of this whole metabolism of business that has played big in the biomedical uh, sphere, which is the aspect of time and how long these systems last. And uh, because one of the things that we know is that these little bacteria, uh, which have very high metabolic rates per gram, also turn over at very high rates. So they live on the order of, you know, minutes. Whereas whales and sequoia trees are living on time scales of centuries. And we know that there are many phenomena related to aging uh, that appear to be due to the long-term deleterious effects of uh, metabolic processes. Uh, to uh, the uh, accumulation of oxidizing compounds that are created by metabolism. You know, that's why these advertisements for herbal medicines and everything emphasize antioxidants and all that sort of stuff, right? Uh, but metabolism inevitably produces uh, compounds, uh, oxidizing compounds that is, escape from the mitochondria and get out there into the cell and into the tissues and cause damage, all kinds of uh, damage, somatic mutations, uh, metabolic dama uh, damage, you know, uh, reduced elasticity of tissues and, and so forth and so on. And, and cumulatively, those things add up to aging and ultimately to death. So Jim, let me just jump in here. So, so are you suggesting that large organisms have relatively low metabolic rates to avoid that oxidative damage? No, I think again, this you know, I mean, one of the whole problems with scaling is that it's really difficult to separate cause and effect out from correlation. I think it's difficult to say because, but if you're going to build a very large organism, it's it's inevitably going to take longer. And if that organism is then going to be able to reproduce and replace itself, it's got to live longer. You know, it takes lo longer to build a giant skyscraper uh, than a, you know, 1,000 square foot condominium. I think one of the really intellectually exciting things about scaling, but one of the th things that's still very much uh, sort of up in the air, is how we tease our way through this sort of web of 
interconnected phenomena, uh, which shows up in correlations, uh, to understand what the really important first principles are. You know, the principles of physics and chemistry and biology uh, that dictate uh, that these systems essentially have to be constructed uh, within some fairly narrow uh, set of design rules. So that's the second part, though, when it when it comes to the kind of uh, mechanisms to allow organisms to live long enough to reach their maximal size, that seems to diverge from the the kind of first principles um, physical constraints on size influencing metabolic rate arguments. That does that not take a left turn? I mean, how how do you get to that place from the the supply side arguments? Well. Uh, I think, uh, and, and John intimated this very early on, that you know, ultimately life has a lot to teach us about uh, some of the most fundamental aspects of science, including thermodynamics. And this whole thing that you know, life creates these far from equilibrium uh, complex systems, and it does this by processing energy and using it to build and maintain and reproduce these systems. You know, that's very, thermodynamically, that's very unlikely. One of the things we need is a better understanding of the time dimension of life and uh, how that factors in to the sort of structure and function, uh, the maintaining and growing the system aspect of life. John, do you want to add anything? Well, I think that... Um... This has been really interesting because um, I think I agree with with Jim about the uh, interesting. It's interesting to think about aging, and this sort of fits in. Had this, um, you know, trying to to think in an organized fashion about all these diverse ecological and physiological things that change with size, and you know, there's a lot of different ways you could think about it, but. But the way that it, it was crystallizing in my mind from the demand side was thinking about small animals in general being selected for high performance and large animals being selected for safety. And by safety, that would include things like being able to live a long time and have have a low metabolic rate to avoid reactive oxygen production, reactive oxygen damage, um, less exposure to risks by being less active. And on the small side, um, being selected for higher growth rates, so you can have uh, your generally small animals tend to be in more um, restricted time, maybe time restricted habitats or um, space restricted habitats where they're uh, either they're growing fast. And the other thing that happens, I think, especially with animals, is that animals of different sizes compete for the um, for resources. They're out foraging. Sometimes they're um, preying on each other. And small animals are, I think. Um, have to, because they're competing in an, in an absolute, not a relative world, they um, uh, need to try to see as well, react as fast, move as fast as the bigger animals. And they can't quite do it quite as well. But I think there's lots of evidence that smaller animals um, have been selected for high neurolocomotory neuro performance, tending to have bigger brains, tending to have faster muscles, all these sort of things. So um, so, so you're saying that the, the small animals have high metabolic rates so that they can avoid getting trampled on or eaten by, <laughs> by the big guys. Is that it? Yeah, and, and, and yeah. get their share of the food, right? And, and so, so these – that there's going to be a general gradient with size on uh, – it's kind of – there's a classic old um, you know, uh, paradigm that I sort of stole for this idea, the fast-slow life People have talked about that. Some some species that are the same size operate, grow quickly, and have short lifespans. And others, you know, sloth kind of animals have are move very slowly and eat slowly and have long lifespans. So this is the idea of thinking about that sort of gradient, but across body size. You know, one of my favorite examples of this actually is the the posture of animals. So if you look at mammals, you know, the classic. Uh, if you if you look at a mouse or a rabbit, gerbil, they tend to be in this crouched position that gives them uh, lots of acceleration and mobility. And if you look at a big mammal like a horse or an elephant, they've got straight legs that reduce their mobility and agility, but, but um, help reduce forces on the joints that potentially would 
cause them to have broken legs. And so, so this again is, I think, an example of uh, the selection for performance versus safety. And again, I, I think this has been in the literature for a long time. People have been talking about things like this, but you know, this this sort of variation in demand with size could potentially be explaining the pattern. John, in light of what you were talking about with respect to small animals uh, being selected to get away from predators, which I guess they're not always that successful at, but there's a lot of selection nonetheless. It strikes me, I have to ask you, why are bats and rodents the things that carry around all the diseases that make us sick? I mean, are they really that bad? Uh, parasites aren't the same as predators. It tends to be smaller taxa that are at least the bad guys when it comes to our own health. So have you thought about defense, how defenses scale? Is that one of the reasons to to get the scaling arguments, the mechanics of scaling right? You know, I think the scaling of defense is a really uh, an immune system function is um, a really fascinating question. I haven't really seen a good study of it. I mean, there is, you know, I, I think there's some evidence for some aspects. I mean, certainly vertebrates have a, some some major leaps in in, in immune function uh, relative to invertebrates. That's partly correlated with size. I don't know, Jim. Do you? Know, I haven't really seen good studies of scaling of immune function of you, Jim. No, no, I haven't kept up, and there's been a lot of interesting stuff done on on, on uh, that whole area of uh, disease, ecology, and so forth. But, Marty, your question just triggered me to come up with something that I just thought of, which is, <laughs> I mean, think about it for a minute. I think you're right. These diseases that get over into humans and become uh, really serious epidemic, pandemic threats usually come from small organisms uh, which are relatively fast lifestyles. If you think about it from the standpoint of the disease, the disease has evolved in those organisms to operate quickly because it has to replicate itself before the host dies, right? So the, the diseases have been selected in a sense to have uh, high growth rates and, and high infection rate. Then they get over into humans, which are slow. You know, they grab and shoot the body very quickly. And, and they're passed on very, you know, very quickly, much more quickly uh, than a, a disease that might have come uh, to equilibrium uh, in a, a large-bodied organism like a human, because there's also evidence that many of the disease organisms co-evolve with their host not to be too virulent, because if they kill off all the hosts, they eventually the disease eventually dies out. Similarly with parasites, for example. This association uh, with diseases of small mammal reservoirs uh, may be because the diseases that have evolved to those small organisms represent adaptations to the host having short life cycles. That's really interesting. But I want to get back to the broader question of resolving what causes metabolic rate to scale as it does. What's the value? Why continue to have this debate or continue to do the research? Once you start thinking in this way, there are whole questions that open up that uh, have barely been touched uh, in, in modern uh, research. One of the things we've been doing is applying this scaling uh, to the performance of organisms and ecosystems, not, not to the interaction among individual species that John was talking about, the competition and predation and disease, uh, but the role of organisms in flexing energy and materials uh, through ecosystems, because again, everything, every calorie of that energy came from a green plant. And uh, one of the things that goes on in ecosystems then is that it's passed up through the food chain, through the metabolic machinery of a series of organisms from the plant to an herbivore, you know, all the way up uh, to the top carnivore, uh, which can be, uh, you know, several steps up through the food chain. And there are powerful constraints uh, that those relationships place on the organi organization of natural ecosystems. And there are implications of that, for example, for the impacts of humans on things like the sustainability of fisheries. If uh, we're beginning to realize, for example, that humans can potentially have large impacts on fisheries for large fish and on 
potentially on conservation of whales by heavy fishing on uh, small fish, anchovies and krill that form the base of those food chains. And you can actually, you know, apply the metabolic theory to make some quantitative estimates of what the values are, what levels of uh, exploitation some of these populations, uh, human exploitation, these populations can withstand and, and so on. Uh, there are biomedical implications. Uh, when we started doing our work, we were amazed to get telephone calls from physicians who said that when they, the way drugs are prescribed to uh, kids versus humans, uh, they don't take differences in metabolic rates into account. They just scale up linearly. They just multiply. So, you know, if, if the dose for an adult is 10x and you have a kid that weighs a tenth of that, uh, you give the kid the medication, you know, a tenth of the medication. But the kid actually has a higher metabolic rate per gram. It's processing things fast. And biomedical community wasn't taking that into account, believe it or not. You know, I also just like to say, you know, some people argue that scaling might explain 70 to 80 percent of the phenotypic variation in animals. It's a big one of the really big patterns in, in Earth. And if we don't understand the, the basic, you know, why that's happening, you know, that, that, that that's really uh, comparable to uh, people that are living on an island and they, uh, you know, there just happen to be cars there and they're driving them, but they have no idea about how an internal combustion engine works. I mean, it's just a very fundamental aspect of, of the way the world works. And it's hard to predict what all of the, um, what all will come out of understanding that. But, but I guess I would argue that getting an appreciation of the, how the organisms are built to, um, to accomplish tasks at different scales can be, have really wide-ranging applications that are hard to predict. I mean, how to how metabolism is controlled is really important for long-term advancing of better surgical techniques and anesthesia. Uh, how to send uh, in all this in all the sci-fi movies, people can go into deep sleep into space. That's all about uh, being able to understand how we control metabolism. We're working with engineers who are interested in understanding how to build really tiny little pumps modeled on insect hearts so they could more efficiently deliver drugs on, you know, a batteryless pump that was inside a human. Um, I mean, I think there's all kinds of really fundamental advances that we, are even hard for us to conceive uh, because we don't understand the, the fundamentals of how it's working. And because body size is so ubiquitous and important, it, it really, I, I think there's a tremendous amount yet to do. Well, the last question that we had is about resolution. Um, Art, Art said just a minute ago that the, the 20,000 foot view might be supply versus demand. I want to fly up higher to 30,000 feet and ask you whether it might be more about the approaches different scientists with our various sort of training baggage take when we ask questions and try to, to use that if, if a path forward to resolution will come via that route. And what I mean by that Jim, you work with Jeffrey West, a theoretical physicist. I just heard uh, a podcast with him. I think it was Sam Harris recently, and he was blown away about how little mathematical theory there was. He was frustrated. So I'm, I'm wondering if some part of the debate, this is A, some part of the debate doesn't come from the side of the tracks that you approach the question, and B, whether resolution might come from the integration of you know these different approaches. I think we're just beginning to understand the phenomena that are involved there. And I, I think it's going to take scientists from many perspectives, theorists and empiricists and physicists and chemists, as well as biologists, to really you know, work out the full implications of this. And I think it's still early days. It's going, you know, even given an enormous rate of progress, it's going to be decades uh, probably before a lot of the really interesting uh, debates are resolved and the questions are answered. And, and I would, you know, th these are big problems. Absolutely going to be important to bring um, more and more mathematical approaches in and linking linking together different scales of energy turnover and in, within an evolutionary context and down to the um, you know, the biophysics of, of uh, transport through tubes, if that ends up being the constraining factor, you need to link, link those things together in a way that's, uh, I, I think, still very challenging. And I think um, there's the question of, 
models if if a model fits is it right you know and how do we you know there's been a lot of work trying to um you know the statistics of testing models cause and effect in models i think that's that's a really important area but i also think i it's probably just my heritage is is to think that the experimental approaches and comparative approaches with animals are going to continue to be very important to answer these questions because um what I found, animals seem to always surprise us. I feel like every mm-hmm. time I make a hypothesis for an experiment, it turns out wrong. And, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I think we have a lot of sim- uh, simplifications that we make. And people outside of our field, the mathematicians and computer scientists, network people that we might pull in to pull these together, they, they'll have even more simplifications. And I, and I, I think that... Um, that fundamentally it's going to take a lot of teamwork between people that work on organisms, people with strong evolutionary backgrounds, uh, mathematicians, physicists. Yeah, it's it's a big, really important question with a lot of implications. I think engineers have a lot to add, too, because they they come in with a sort of a, uh, a mindset of using mathematical and, and physical chemical approaches to addressing functional problems. Yeah, I would just add to that. You know, to the young people who are listening to this and may want to go into areas that are related to some of it, you know, um, I would like to stress the importance of math and the importance of not fearing the math. Uh, Because of my dyslexia, I'm probably the most mathematically challenged theoretical uh, biologist in the world, but it is you know, really important uh, ultimately to understand uh, some of the basic mathematics that underlies these. And we haven't talked about, you know, log-log relationships and so forth. But if you're going to get into this, you've got to understand what a logarithm is, and you know, and why and and what an exponential relationship is. And and uh, I don't think there's any getting around that to do, uh, you know, 21st century whole organism and ecological and evolutionary biology, uh, as well as 21st century cellular and molecular biology. Okay, well, I think we should stop there. Thanks so much, guys, and um, we'll be in touch. Take care. Bye. Thanks to Matt Ploys for production and editing help. Thanks also to Haley Hansen, Steve Lane, Romain Boisseau, and Gerard Sapest.